Welcome to the Brown Posey Press Show, part of the BookSpeak Network, a program dedicated to independent and self-published authors. This show will examine new and unique works of literature, learn about their creators, and discuss the industry. And now your host, Tori Gates. Two years ago, May now, as you made yourself ready for death, I wanted to remain, relieve her of her duty, and be a good daughter. You sent me home to die with her alone. I have been to Samarkand a final time, a journey by water, the dream geography more full than life, the mosque, the church, the covered women singing, the stations of the cross, the goblin boat to take me back by morning. I travel by train north and walk to the park. It's hot and burning to see the icons at the Met, to look into the eyes of each and every opalescent virgin in the house of the Father. She guides the souls in comfort to Samara. A part of the poem, I have been to Samarkand. Our guest today is Dr. Anne Elizabeth Pluto. She is a professor of literature and theater at Lesley University in Cambridge, Massachusetts. She's the artistic director and one of the founders of the Oxford Street Players. She is also an alumna of Shakespeare and Company and a longtime member of the Worcester Shakespeare Company. Her writings have appeared in numerous publications, such as the Buffalo Evening News, Matt Hadlett, Yellow Chair Review, and Muddy River Review. She's the author of works of poetry, including The Frog Princess and Lubbock Electric, plus the collection we will focus on, The Deepest Part of Dark. And welcome. Thank you for coming on. Well, thanks for having me. And we must begin a little disclaimer. Uh, it took me a little bit to sort of remember, but back in 1996, I walked into what looked like a classroom somewhere and I stood before you and another old friend, Lisa Risley, and I was auditioning for a play you two had written. I just remember being slightly nervous and rather intimidated and even a little scared. And I just rolled with my uh, my monologue, and I guess you liked me because I got a part. <laughs> Yes, we did like you. You were great. You were great to work with. And Thank you. Great on stage and just a great scene partner. Well, I appreciate it because uh, it was something I had never really done that much of. And uh, I just remember how much fun it was because I became good friends with Riz. I became friends with you. I hate to say this. Some of the names, I have to go dig out my old script, but you know, a lot of the names were lost to me over the years but in doing things and i loved how you all would just start singing between like scenes and just start talking and doing different stuff and it was it was fun but it was also a hell of a learning experience well, that's great i'm glad to hear that you know that it's such a long time ago and i remember it was a summer production that the college had given lisa and i money to do and um it, it was a crazy play, and it had those ridiculous songs in it. But, yeah, it was fun. And my friend Bryson was in it. She played the stripper, and yes. she also did the lights in the um, in the booth. So that was hilarious. Yes, Bryson Dean, I remembered her. She was wonderful. 
And, yeah, we're very close. Yeah, yeah and um, I realized I was amid serious actors. And the the enduring memory I have is you and Riz and other people walking behind me, grabbing my shoulders and straightening them back and straightening my head and saying, you're slouching, stop it. <laughs> Yes, yes, and pulling your head up. And you were tall to begin with. <laughs> the idea was to get more breath out of you. Yes, yeah. yes, and I needed that. Yeah, I never I haven't real- done that to somebody in a while, but yeah, that's <laughs> a good one. Well, A Comedy of Eros, that was the name of it. And it, it took me a while to remember it. And it was like, somebody asked me about the play, and I was like, what's the name of it? Oh, my God, I can't remember the name. <laughs> I know, yeah, but nobody would know it. I mean, we never went and got it published. It was, it had a lot of potential. I think the end could have been rewritten. I mean, Vicky leaves Bill at the altar because he's an alcoholic. It probably could have been a better ending. But some of those characters were hilarious. Oh, they were. I, I remembered we talked about it, about how to end it. And um, I had always thought that uh, the ex-wife should have confronted him and just said, do you know what you're doing or something like that? But that was That's all second. Probably- that would have been a good one, yeah. Might have been oh, second-guessing. The ex-wife, she was great. Yeah, I remember <laughs> her. And then uh, my favorite character, of course, was Cliffy and Nita, you know, the and then the gangsters at the bar. At, oh, God. You know, that was <laughs> the theater of shame. Yeah, that was funny. It was, it was a great time, indeed. And, you know, those are things you remember. And you, you, you always keep the experience with you no matter what, even if it wasn't a good one, but it was, it was positive for me. Oh, I'm glad. Yeah, well, it was fun. I have a lot of photos. I had, I'll have to find them and I'll take pictures of them and send them to you. Oh, and I, boy. I made an album for Lisa. So there were doubles, you know, they were, they're all black and white, but they're, no, they're in color. What am I talking about? Yeah, they're fun. I'll, I'll look for them. That's cool. Um, I have to dig out the, the old script. I know I have it somewhere. But um, anyway, uh, that's that's that leads us up into what I always gathered from you, and I certainly picked it up from Riz, was like the depth of you comes out in your writing. And here is a title that is so apropos, The Deepest Part of Dark and... For me, this was kind of a difficult read because I sensed you going someplace that even authors or artists do not go or can't go. And I I measure that kind of by how hard it was for me to read it. I had to read like two or three pieces at a time, and then I had to literally just put the book down and be like, all right. What did I just read? And there's very few people that have done that to me. So I think that's a good thing. Well, yeah, I'll take that as a compliment that my my work was a little hard to get through. Well, it's just, it's, it's definitely, I hate this word, heavy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a book about parts of life and death that are um, challenging. And about love. So the speaker in, you know, in the poems, the speakers in these poems, they're not afraid of like confronting these feelings. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the first poem is about the river sticks, you know, where the speaker asks the mother, like, what's it like to cross over? You know, tell me about it. And mm-hmm. then there are, you know, obviously many poems about death in here. And there's 
a lot of yeah. You know, there's a lot of things about family. There's a lot of things about, as you say, love, and there's that introspection that when you when you put that down in just so many words, it's it's something. Now, this series of poems, first of all, many of these have appeared in other publications. Um, how did you bring these specifically together? Was there a project in mind? Uh, no, this is funny you should ask that because I was meeting with my writing group um, maybe a week ago and we were all talking, there's four of us and there are four women, and they were talking about writing poems that were to turn into a book. Mm-hmm. And I don't think like that. So I said to them, I just write and then like I'll print them and I'll put them on the floor and I'll pick them up to see like which ones go with which ones. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I mean, writing fiction is different. Yes, you've got a, a narrative going, but I, I know other people do it the way they talked about it. To you know, they're writing the poems for a book, mm-hmm. but I didn't. And you I wrote s- these at different parts, you know, of the past I would say ten years, and then I put them together. Mm-hmm. And. You say you're just right. Is that is that sort of is it the spontaneous uh, thing of oh I've got something and I'm just writing it down because I recall you and Riz used to write things down all the time, but I thought it was always notes for what we were doing, and yet at the same time I would see Riz over the years jotting down ideas, and so she wouldn't forget them and. I used to do that because I'd get stuck for a title or something and I would be like, oh, that's a good one. I don't know what I'll do with it. Or here's an idea. And I've stopped doing that because I've started to realize I repeated myself. And then I just thought, okay, if it comes back to me, it was meant. Uh, how do you do it, though? Is it is it a just right or does something come on? I, I've always wondered that inspiration for each person. Well, sometimes it's just inspiration and I get really good ideas for poems when I'm walking because, you know, when you're walking, it's a rhythmic pattern, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And, or if I'm doing things in the house, if I'm cooking, but that's, you know, creative or baking mm-hmm. and I like to bake. Um, sometimes if I'm cleaning, I think it's about repetitive movement. Okay. And I mean, it would be like playing music. Mm-hmm. That there's you're finding a rhythm, or I'm finding a rhythm in something, and then the words appear, and then you know, I, hopefully, I take a break so I don't forget. <laughs> Especially as the older I get, you know, right. it's easier to forget things. But uh, some of these things I've heard over and over in my head, and I'm like, okay, you got the first four lines. Now sit down and see what comes out of them. Right. Now, and then there's a wonderful thing in April. It's called, uh, it used to be called the Dirty 30 because, you know, April's Poetry Month and there's 30 days to the month. Yeah. So there are various groups or small presses on Facebook that will um, give a prompt a day. And these are great to do. And I would, you know, probably out of 30, I would do 25 of them. And a lot, some of the poems, not a lot, but some of the poems in this book came out of one of those. Mm-hmm. Now, 2019, you, it was good. Right. Now, you have set this up in a series of about, so it's seven parts. And yeah. we've talked about, you know, the death and passing, your Russian Orthodox faith, recollection of places. How did the seven parts uh, present themselves? And maybe that was that moment where you're 
putting those on the floor and thinking part one, maybe part two, something other? I had an order for them. And then I have a very good friend. She's a publisher and she's published something else of mine named Gloria Mindock. And her press is Trevana Barba in Somerville. And I went to her and I said, okay, I'm going to put these out on these tables. We took four like banquet tables, you know, the folding ones, because she used to have a studio. And we put them in a row and I put them out in order. And then I stepped away and she stood there and she said, no, I think this one goes here and that one goes there. So it's really good to have another set of eyes, especially someone who knows your work. And so she put them in a different order. Not many, but I would say 15 of them she changed. And it was great. And maybe one or two she said, you don't need them in here. And then, you know, so I had this stack because it's a big book. Because Jonathan (laughs) um, Penton, the um, publisher, he wanted a big book. So I said, all right, you'll get one. So I think it's 121 (laughs) pages of poems. And then I divided them. Oh, no, Gloria was there when I divided them. And I like... Um, I like following patterns, so it's a pattern of time, and so it begins with the river Styx, and then it ends with, um, well, there's the poem about Samarkand, you know, my father's war story. Mm-hmm. Poem is Oh, it starts, it ends with Samarkand, which is great. So I wanted to start with my mother's death and end with my father's. I see. And then I wanted seven, because it's like seven days to the, a week. Mm-hmm. So it's about it's about time, but it's like me playing with time because it's not like a linear book. Right. My father actually died before my mother, but it's you know when you when you put it together, it makes sense. It made sense to me. So the people who've read it and liked it said it made sense to them. So. All right. We are speaking with Anne Elizabeth Pluto, the author of The Deepest Part of Dark on the Brown Posey Press Show. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Explore Sunbury Press books and find the work of talented authors in many genres. Ars Metaphysica is our spiritual, new age, and metaphysical imprint. Check out Pettengill's Perfect Fortune Teller and Dream Book by Pelatiah Pettengill. The Space Between by Judith Bowen and works by Kareem El Kusa, including The Phoenician Code. Find out more by clicking on the Books tab at sunburypress.com. Big is your heart and grave to your making. I will set myself to your love, a thunder to the landscape rain and flood and wild horses in your father's corral. I'm standing opposite your desire, slender and humid to be opened, kissed and made more than content. You are the very heart of Texas, never subdued, but always singing yourself, soul to the tempo, soul of the story, soul of the earth, soul to my soul, heart of weeds and roses play and sing and dance me to the end. Texas Love Poem Number 2, one of the many works of Anne Elizabeth Pluto's The Deepest Part of Dark here on the Brown Posey Press Show. Let's talk now, Anne, about some of the themes here. Uh, Part 1 involved the passing of your mother, and you've spoken with such... uh, you know, regard for them, such love for them. And they appear throughout this in the imagery of, obviously they were just huge influences on you. 
Yeah, yeah, they were. They. I don't know my family, um, my other family. Like I knew my parents, obviously, mm-hmm. but the rest of their families, their parents, their siblings, aunties, uncles, all of that, they were all in the Soviet Union. So in Belarus, what's today Belarus? Right. They were ghosts. And so there's this mythology of family that um, I guess I created as a kid, you know, from whatever my parents told me. And photos, you know, old photos. And then photos, we used to get a lot of letters from the Soviet Union. And Mm -hmm. they were all um, censored. Like if the censor didn't like what my grandfather wrote, they crossed it out. Um, It was an interesting, you know, way to see the world. And... My father, he had a great, you know, war story, and they have a great love story. So, you know, the stories were important to me. And my father really liked poetry. Like, he could rattle things off in other languages. And he bought me my first books, like Child's Garden of Verse, Russian Fairy Tales, and the Arabian Nights. And I write about that in my next book, like, which is coming out in October. But, you know, those three books really had a very big influence on me. That's really something. And how about your mother, the, 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 the angle that she brought to your upbringing and so forth? It's always these two, isn't it? The, the yeah, mother and the father. She's very, yeah, she's very creative. Um, she In Europe, she let they learn how to weave in school. So my parents, when they were growing up, it was Poland. After the First World War, that part of Imperial Russia became Poland. And their village was five miles from the Soviet border. Mm-hmm. But they're ethnically Belarus. And actually, my mother's mother was a Tatar. So they were interesting mixed people. But they were Orthodox Christians. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, my mother saw ghosts. She was, she was a very creative person. Like, she could make things. And but my father was the one with language. Like, yeah, he really liked language. He liked to play with it. He would have been a good actor, too. He was very funny. <laughs> And didn't they have, uh, I saw this in an interview, they, they had quite a, a an odyssey to catch up with each other. Yeah, they did. Yeah, they did. So my mother was born in America to parents who met here, who had come from Imperial Russia before World War One. you know, to make money. And um, they got married here. My mother was born in America. And then they went back, and it was Poland, because my grandfather had land mm-hmm. and they lived five miles from the soviet border in their big farm but my father lived in that same village and the name of the village is kudjek and my mother's and my father's sister were best friends my father was seven years older than my mother mm-hmm. and he apprenticed to be a blacksmith and then my mother decided to go to america so she was like 17 she was very lucky she came to the family my grandmother had been a maid for in New York. They sponsored her. Even though she was a citizen, she needed a sponsor. And she came in her boat docked March 17th, 1938. Mm. And then Hitler declared war on Poland September 1st, 1939. Right. So my father was in the Polish army. But he, remember, he's, he's ethnically Russian or Belarus. I really think his ethnicity saved him. And that he was a blacksmith and young and very strong. Mm-hmm. 
quite the story. I mean, there's a lot of books written about those Polish prisoners who ended up with the British in 1941. It's, it's an odyssey. He was just very lucky. Like, he should have died many times, and he didn't. But that aside, they did not see each other until, like, 1950 in Canada. Wow. My father came to Canada after the war, and they got back in touch. She thought he was dead. And, again, you know, this Russian resurrection story, like, that's big theme in my um, work, resurrection. Mm-hmm. And um, they saw each other, and then my mother had been married to somebody else. She had to wait for that divorce to happen. And um, then they got married in Toronto, and he had to wait a year to come to the States. Mm-hmm. From 1938 and, to like till 1949, maybe they didn't see each other. And isn't that something? Amazing. Yeah. Just amazing. What a story. You know, I tell people, you never know. And this is like during a time where there was no cell phones, right? Or no yeah. computers and a war where, you know, nobody was getting information out from prisons. Exactly. Especially in the Soviet Union, nobody was sending mail home. Yeah. And it's like we read history and uh, I have for a future book, I've been doing some of my own researched people who, you know, survived the concentration camps were stripped of everything and what they had to go through just to get their identities back and to get any kind of support whatsoever. And, you know, not knowing if any of their family were even still alive and there was just so much there. And you can just imagine the, you know, there's the stress, there's the angst, and then there's just the not knowing of, is there anybody out there? Yeah, I think the not knowing must have really been so painful because if you survive such horror, I guess you want to know if your people are alive mm-hmm. or not. Yeah, and... I have to ask also, it's kind of a jump forward here, but you did an interview a while back with Doug Holder, which I found on YouTube, and I found that really interesting. Um, You talk about losing your parents, and what struck me was, and I think you you write about this, you know, going back to the apartment in Brooklyn, there's Mm -hmm. so much there that they've collected over the years, and when our mother passed away, our father went, went first, and when it came time, it was like we all had that moment of going into the house we grew up in, and we knew what mom left us. But at the same time, you're looking at everything else, and you're like, there's so much here. That's overwhelming, isn't it? It's very overwhelming. Um, so my father died first, and here this is part of a love story. And when he was dying, he had cancer that she actually cured him of for 17 years and came back. Wow. But um, he said, her, wait seven years and then come and meet me and we'll be the same age. Mm. And she died seven years later. Wow. Yeah, and I remember telling the, this doctor at a, a rehab that she was at, and this woman looked at me like, well, I don't think there's, you know, that's just weird. And I looked at her, I said, you're not getting it. That's my mother's worldview. It's not yours. It's hers. And we're talking about her as your patient. Mm. Yeah, I learned a lot about that, that being an advocate. But, um, yeah, walking into... So my father died, and my mother lived there, and then she had a stroke. And very nice nurses, they let 
they got her up here so she'd be near me. So I would go every other weekend. She was still alive, but, you know, in a very good place. And I would go, and my friend, my childhood friend Paula, would come. She lived in Brooklyn. And we would just go through things and how many things I donated. Because I knew my mother was never coming back to that apartment. Right. Thankfully, it was a four-room apartment. Like, you probably walked into a farmhouse. And how many rooms of stuff. Yes. Yeah, so I always look at my things, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to get rid of things. (laughs) I'm going to start now. (laughs) Just, I don't really need all this. Yeah. True. Well, I have to also ask out of this, um, you have one of the more evocative poems and i'm not sure if that's even the right word it might not be good enough you have unnatural acts in part three travel to russia the visit to the descendant's grave and that's one of the ones that took more than one read for me and now did you go there or did you transport yourself there because it felt like that Oh, no, I didn't go there. I wish I had. I think that would be a nice thing to go to the cemetery where all my my Russian dead are. I would enjoy talking to them. But, you know, there's again, stories about these grandfathers, and this guy was um, Catholic. And he married my great-great-great-grandmother, who was Orthodox, for her land. Her family had land, and mm-hmm. he agreed that the children would be baptized in the Orthodox Church. So that's how that family became Orthodox. Um, it, no, it's just that the actually the title of the book was supposed to be Unnatural Acts, mm-hmm. and then I thought, nah. And then Gloria Mindock, she found the title. She was mm-hmm. looking at the poem. She said, "Here it is: the deepest part of dark." And I said, "That's it." Yeah, that's. <laughs> yeah, but that's a dark poem. I mean, yeah, I don't ever look at it that way. I look at it, you know, as the dream, right? Yeah. And but people have said to me, "Oh my God, the vampire!" And she's kissing his teeth. I'm like, "Well, yeah, like maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe it is creepier than I thought." It's it's a matter of interpretation, and yeah. it it and that's that's the the thing is, way our writing is subjective. There's there's no way to, I mean, critics can say what they think is right or or wrong with something, yeah. but we're all critics. And we're oh, critics, yeah. of, and we're critics of ourselves, especially. And um, no, it was just definitely, it, yeah. Uh, I have one thing to ask here. Um, you injected Shakespeare, and we're going to talk more about that. You inject the oh, Merchant yeah. of Venice, I think. Here, Portia, Portia, be- yeah, Portia it's a love and, poem, yeah. Yes, and, and did that just sort of find its way in because I, you and and Riz, of course, your background in Shakespeare and and your love of it, you know, the Bard kind of showed up, didn't he? <laughs> well, I wanted to play with it. I, you know, I was directing this play at that time so mm-hmm. this was written um later and uh it must have been 2009 i don't know 2008 whenever i was directing this lisa wasn't part of that okay and i you know i worked on this monologue with the girls so many times and then i was like all right i wonder if i could play with it myself Mm-hmm. Just play with it. Like, what else would she be saying, mm-hmm. Portia? So, yeah. 
works well. <laughs> yeah, it works well. And I threw myself in there because it's the uh, sum of me is the fair sum of motherhood, marriage of vows, you know, all of that. Exactly. Yeah, no, I, I love Shakespeare. So, you know, I was thinking about like why Shakespeare. Somebody asked me this. And I thought, well, you know, English is a second language to me. And I had to go to speech class because I don't know how I said the S sound. But in, you know, Slavic languages, there's a lot of S sounds. So yes. it, they must have sounded um, <laughs> some mixture of Russian and Polish. And I I worked so hard at my S Mm-hmm. And I still feel it like, you know, I, I want to speak another language when I say something with an S. But mm-hmm. I picked the hardest English I could find. And I was going to make it mine. Well, you definitely did. We're speaking with Anne. Yeah. We're speaking with Anne Elizabeth Pluto, author of Deepest Part of Dark on the Brown Posey Press Show. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Sunbury Press Books is the home of independent authors and thinkers. Radio Free Press is our imprint for politics and social issues. Check out authors such as Pat LaMarche, author of Still Left Out in America, The State of Homelessness in the United States. Wingnuts, a field guide to everyday extremism in America by David Michael Slater. And A Year of Change and Consequences by Mark Single. Find out more by clicking the Books tab at sunburypress.com. Green water, South Pacific or Adriatic dream water, Grand Canal to Carnival. The masks they wore were not made in Italy, intermittent mother tender water masks where they could not go. Brighton Beach, it beckons still, water wave crashing save. Still from the rocky reef refuge, the teeming shoreline left behind, an ocean supported, surrendered between two world wars and a generation. Lost, they swam with the fishes, watched the man in white who sold knishes and fed us from their wedding dishes. Sea salty air and shoulders bare, Brighton Beach was never Venice. Brighton Beach was never Venice, one of the collection in The Deepest Part of Dark, written by Anne Elizabeth Pluto, our guest here. And in our final part, uh, and we've touched on it briefly, um, you've talked about your Russian Orthodox faith, uh, learning English as a second language, and your spirituality or your religion, whichever way you want to call it, I, I lean towards spirituality myself, but whatever works for each person i think it obviously has had such a it's had such an influence and such a it's almost like a there's a, it's part of the template but you also don't push it it's 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 sort of like it's it's fitted into you really well where does it fit in your life where does it how does it uh, set itself in you that's that's another really great question. I just want to uh, piggyback on something else, and then I'll answer that. Yeah, I didn't do English as a second language. Oh, okay. My parents spoke English. My mother um, said to my father when I was born, she said, "We're going to speak English with her, broken or not. We're speaking English." Okay. So um, I I spoke English. I understood what they were talking about 
in you know Belarus, which is what they spoke. Right. Polish, I kind of tuned out for. I'm not sure why. And you know, they offered me Polish school on Saturdays. I didn't want to go. I wish I had. It would have been nice to have Polish also, because I took Russian in college, all through college and graduate school. Um, so the Orthodox piece, you know, I don't want to call it ancestor worship, but. I didn't go to an Orthodox church growing up. There wasn't one in the neighborhood. So I actually went to a Methodist church because they did theater, and I wanted to sing in the choir and do plays. Ah. So I did that. You know, so I was always like the outsider. <laughs> like I, I didn't really belong there, but they, I mean, they were very nice to me. But I wasn't going to be confirmed because my father made it clear to me when you were baptized, you were confirmed. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, so the Orthodox Church was always mysterious. Um, there's one in my neighborhood. Yeah, I don't go, though. Uh, it's just, it's more spiritual. And my mother was very, um, she didn't go to church a lot either, you know, as an adult. One thing, she got migraines, and they used the incense, it's like in your face, oh. the whole three hours I mean, they, they never stop and my parents grew up on farms right so my mother really she sometimes she would say to me you know what i think god is is nature mm. and the cycles of the earth and you know that we don't love it enough and she would always say you know this this is probably heaven it's not going to get better Hmm. what it could look like. That's interesting. Yeah, and she also really was very in tune with the moon. Like from the kitchen window in our apartment, you really could see the moon like when it, in all its phases. And she would definitely would look at it a lot. No, she didn't pray to it. It's nothing like that. But it was just that it was so far away and mysterious. And, and yet there's a so rev- reverence or respect there. Yeah, for and for nature, deep respect for nature, and you know how terrible people were in treating the world, and um, yeah, they made that very clear to me mm-hmm. about you know the, the natural world. My father prayed a lot. My mother didn't. Yeah, you know, my father really did Orthodox prayers at night. Wow. I think it's partially that he survived such horror. You know, my mother was in the states during the war. That that certainly makes sense. Um, yeah, I mean, he survived, and he believed that 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 it was all the miraculous. I do believe in the miraculous because I've seen it happen. So that's cool. Well, um, here's the thing too: is like you're, we can see where where your um, your groundwork was being laid for theater and your love of it. Um, you ended up, and this is interesting. You went to the University of Buffalo, and you earned three degrees, including your doctorate. Well, from my perspective, because I've always seen folks who just went to different schools for different things, but this must have been such a place for you. Well, I went to Brooklyn College for two years, yeah. and um, and then I realized I just I had to leave home. I just had to get away. Yep. Um, so I went, then I transferred to the University of Buffalo because they had a really good English department. Mm-hmm. And um, I had good good teachers. Robert Creeley was one of my teachers. He definitely had an influence on my work. I wanted to ask about him and, and Irving Feldman. These these names are yeah. familiar, but it's like it sounds like yeah. so much Irving more. Irving Feldman, he's so wonderful. Uh-huh. Um, 
we were keeping in touch for quite a while. I think he passed away at this point, too. I think. I could be wrong. Bob is, has passed away. Right. And then there was another um, poet, uh, John Logan, who people don't really talk about now, but he was a very good lyric poet. He had a big influence on me, as much as Creeley or Feldman. And Feldman was from Brooklyn, so, you know, we had that connection. <laughs> um, he was a character. He was great. Yeah, Irving was great. He's a wonderful man. Um, and so was Bob. Bob was... Yeah, I loved his work. Mm. Yeah, deeply loved his work. Very influential. And um, yeah, and and what what kind of here you are coming in with with the you know the the young student and what were their their styles must have all been a little bit different but what did they give you in terms of like what was a, a central thing that they taught you maybe not without teaching you more like not telling you it's more like showing instead of telling as they always say what what did they bring out in you do you think well i think with creeley it was definitely the short line you know the the short line poems Mm -hmm. and i wrote a lot of them and this book doesn't only has a few because you know i thought you got to branch out a little here you can't just write these two you know words on a line poems um I, i would say logan had a big influence on me for image for lyricism because I've been told that my poetry is musical even though I'm not a good musician I struggle a lot and struggle with keeping time which is interesting because what I told you in the beginning is all about I hear the time in Mm -hmm. my head Um, if my poetry has a time signature you know they they do they have rhythmic patterns yes although you know mine get away from the the ones that we all learn the Greek ones Mm -hmm. um Feldman, yeah, also about rhythm and word choice. I mean, my subject matter was so different. You know, I was a young woman. I mean, these were men in their 50s. <laughs> like, you know, this could be worlds away. But they were, they were, Bob was great. Like, you know, Bob really wanted people to come to readings and he was very accessible, and so was Irving Feldman. John Logan, unfortunately, was a, a very um, bad alcoholic. So there was, we would have workshop at his house for the class, and it was really pathetic at times. Oh, that's too bad. That's sad, and I'm, I'm, that's all I'm going to say. There's a very sad end to all this, but I'm just going to leave it there. Okay. Well, pivoting sort of to teaching yourself. Um, I have done talks and I've had people ask me, you know, when I'm at events of like, is there any one way to, to, to write? And I said, no, there isn't. It's, it's really, you know, you can be only taught so much, but really it's, it's what works for you and that sort of thing. Um, how, how do you approach your, you know, students, especially when you have students with different styles and different maybe the different drives that they have the things that inspire them how do you take those well i teach a lot of intro courses for creative writing i'm in a department with several other poets so because i can teach the literature also in theater um i teach those courses too so you know an intro poetry course it's some of it's playing with form and language and i just tell people to be very free and not to uh, 
acting out, like not to be a severe critic. Right. And self-censor. And to just see what comes out. Like I had one student, she Spanish was her, you know, first language. She was an adult student. And these courses were online. And I'm thinking recently, you know, post-COVID type stuff. Mm-hmm. And she said to me, I'm really struggling writing these in English. And I said, write them in Spanish. Just write them in Spanish. I said, my Spanish isn't great, but I'll probably figure it out and you'll help me. And they were quite good. Wow. So it's really about like, you know, what can you do like to make it accessible? Because people are afraid of poetry. Mm-hmm. It's weird. <laughs> it's mysterious. Yeah, it's... Uh, I, I follow I, strict patterns, even though there are patterns, there are quote-unquote rules. It doesn't always use them. Right. And there's the, you know, there's so many different, there's just so many ways to tell the story or to say what's on your mind. And yeah. no, that's cool to have that. Um, I want to ask also, um, in the time we have left, about Nix's Mate Review. This was something you helped found. Tell us about the review, this publication. What brought it about? Well, um, my publishing partner, Michael McGinnis, he and I have known each other since 1986. Mm-hmm. Long time. And we were part of the um, Boston small press scene, and I was with a magazine called Oak Square, which was really a beautiful literary magazine. And he had a magazine, Nightmares of Reasons. It was a zine. And then he had a bookstore. So there became like a scene in Alston. Um, and, you know, we were good friends. And we hadn't seen each other for a very long time. You know, things happen. And then he came to my mother's, my mother's wake. And he came with another friend, Philip Borenstein, who he had been the publisher for Oak Square. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we just talked, and then maybe a month afterwards, we got together for lunch downtown, because Philip worked there. And we were like, it's time to start a magazine again. And at that point, you know, everything was online, like 2016. Like, online journals were big. Yep. So you didn't have the overhead for paper, and all, you know, all of that. The production cost and everything. And the production costs, yeah. So we started it. So, um... Philip was a silent partner because he's a tech person. And then Michael wanted to do books. So we got people to send us manuscripts, people we knew. And we did a lot of books. He's a very good designer, a really good book designer. He's a carpenter. That's what he's a master carpenter. That's what he does, cabinet maker. Mm-hmm. And uh, for a living, right? And the uh, website changed. And we're actually having a meeting tonight for our next issue. Um, And then he said to me, I think it was last year, he goes, let's start doing the journal in print. Mm. We did. And it's, you know, quite beautiful. So you can, you know, people can order it. They can go to nixismate.pub on the web. And Nixismate is an island. It used to be a, a big island in the Boston Harbor where they would hang the pirates. Ah. And it's named after, you know, somebody, Nixis mate, the mate of some ship or uh, captain. And now it's just a navigational hazard, but you could find it. <laughs> it's on the map. That's cool. Well, it has a movie. 
Well, Anne, you have indicated a new book is coming. Tell us about it. Yes, I have a new book coming out. It's called How Many Miles to Babylon. And it's going to be out by the Lily um, Poetry Review Press. I just saw the cover yesterday with the blurbs on it. It's really beautiful. Um, So, you know, it has my favorite themes like death and love. But it's also a lot about women. There's a lot of stories of women in it and women's friendships and saints and things that go wrong. And... At the end, and, and women who have, you know, died, um, have been assassinated, like political assassinations of certain women, things I've read about and, you know, then wrote about. Um, and but it's, and one of the poems is How Many Miles to Babylon, and it's from a nursery rhyme that I really twisted around to, to show a different side of that place. Okay. Well, I'm I'm interested, that's for sure. Um, and where can we find your works? I've seen them on Amazon, but is there a specific place you'd like to direct uh, people to? Oh, yeah. You know, all of us small press people, we talk about this. Um, unfortunately, people can find things on Amazon. Um, I know that Deepest Part of Dark, that is the place to get it. You You purchase it through Amazon. It's the press, but through there. I think um, the Lubbock Electric, it's it's a Nixus Mate book. Maybe you could get... No, you still have to go to Amazon to get it. No, you could buy it off their website. I'm sorry. You can buy it off our website. Very cool. Um, purchase it that way. And then there's a book out by Trevena Barva Press uh, called um, Benign Protection, and that can be purchased on their website. And then the Lily book will be out in October. And I do have a website. It's com. Very cool. Well, my last question, and this is usually how I end them. What one piece of advice can you give an aspiring poet or author, no matter the level they're at? What's the one thing you would say to them? Don't be afraid of rejection. Just write. And when you feel you have something, I would join a group. That's the other thing. It's good to get feedback, get in a writing workshop. All right. Other people. Yeah, that, that's my advice. All right. Don't give up. Well, our guest has been Ann Pluto, the author of The Deepest Part of Dark. It is great to speak with you again. Thank you for being on. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Take care. You've been listening to the Brown Posey Press Show with your host, Tori Gates. Find his works, including Searching for Roy Buchanan, Call It Love, and Shake Hands with the Devil, along with more independent authors of fiction and nonfiction at sunburypress.com. Thank you for listening. This is the BookSpeak Network. <laughs>